Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we are looking at times of crisis. Not a time for panic, but a time for taking concerted and deliberate action. Make sure you take plenty of notes and most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action as we give you a game plan to make sure that you're an all-seasons investor that can protect and grow your capital under all circumstances. See you on the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. Now, topic of today's conversation may seem a little somber at first, although I guess the angle we'll take today is solution-based rather than problem-based. We're going to talk about times of crisis, being in the property market or the stock market, what to do. Yeah, it's a very important one. Uh, you know, in the financial planning world, every year and sometimes twice yearly, uh, you see a revision of advice where you update people's exposure to markets, etc. But we live in an environment now which is significantly more volatile. Um, you know, there are global events and economic events, which of course uh, can really have a dramatic and immediate impact on the performance of markets. So I guess you know, the purpose for our podcast today is to talk about some of the things to do in what we would deem to be a time of crisis. Speaking of which, let's define a time of crisis mm. first. So there's probably a couple of different categories. What would they be? Yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, we could talk about economic crisis uh, in itself. There's market crises, which may be something that's more unique to either the stock market or, or the property market. And then there may be more asset specific or stock specific events that come along too. So that's like a, a subset of both of those. So something like COVID would be a specific event, which is a time of crisis for the economy, the stock market and the property market. Absolutely. Right? It's, a, it's an all encompassing uh, sort of uh, blot on the landscape, so to speak, which, which had a, a definitely an immediate and dramatic impact. So yeah, if you, if you start by looking at say from an economic crisis perspective, that could be slowing growth, rising unemployment, higher levels of inflation, rising interest rates. Uh, all of those things on the surface of it don't seem like a crisis because they're very gradual. Uh, and the lens I typically try and look through as a trader is to take an item of news or an event that's going on and then join the dots to be able to position my asset mix to exploit that particular trend that's going on. As I say, in the traditional financial planning model, that might be 10 11 months after the event where you go, okay, the economy's slowed down, so it's time to be more defensive, but you've had 10 months of slower economies, so you already get into the party late. So it's about trying to pick up on those trends as they're happening. And particularly, you know, if you talk about interest rates or inflation, um, there's a trend that can continue on for quite some time. It's not just one interest rate move, but when that trend starts, it's usually going to be something that goes on for a more significant period of time. It's very, very rare, for example, for central banks to raise interest rates once normally do it over and over and over again. So seeing the early sign and being able to set yourself up for it can help you avoid a crisis by being able to exploit that particular movement in markets on the back of it. Speaking of interest rates at the moment, topic of everyone's conversation almost at the moment, just refinanced my mortgage, and that is, of course, the property market. Mm. We're in a situation where interest rates are going up. Mm. Uh, what kind of issues do you see that can happen in the property market? How do you backstop against those? Look, there are a couple of things. One, obviously, um, is is affordability and debt servicing for one. And one of the challenges people can find themselves in is that you know, if you get a situation where you know, you're finding it hard to service your properties, where the cash flow coming out of them isn't sufficient to cover uh, the level of debt, um, refinancing is always a good option. It's part of our annual checklist. Glad to see you got it in uh, for the end of the financial year, which is, uh, which is good prudent organization on your part as always, yeah. Um, so you know, rising, rising interest rates, usually are associated with high levels of inflation. And if you look at uh, any kind of leasing agreement, whether it be commercial or whether it be residential, um, typically there's a provision in there for a rent 
review and it's usually CPI, CPI plus X. So it might be inflation plus 2%. So that rise in interest rates because of a rising level of inflation gives you the ability to increase your rent to attract more tenants in there, or not necessarily attract more tenants in there, uh, but to extract more revenue line from them by raising their rent. Sounds harsh, but that's just the reality of the commercial relationship you have with them. Now, let's say you have either raised your rate, uh, sorry, raised your rent, or you can't raise your rent, for example, AB, for a period of time. Mm. Interest, interest rates are going up thick and fast. The affordability on your property is diminishing because mm. it's costing you a heap in interest for payments. Mm. Is there anything else that you can do in a situation like but, that? I guess if you're struggling to make payments on, on a property portfolio per se, if you've got other forms of asset, more liquid assets, is to actually reduce the debt level okay. uh, that you've got there because that then effectively would reduce your payments. And if you're, for argument's sake, um, let's say you've got a, a chunk of cash that's sitting waiting to be invested and you haven't deployed it anywhere yet, or if it's in a, a liquid asset such as stocks, for example, um, you've got to evaluate then, well, what does my return look like on my stock investing? What does my return look like on my cash? And you know, if you've got inflation, chances are you've got a negative real return on cash anyway. Uh, and, and instead of maybe allocating that money uh, to sit in cash, use it to pay down the mortgage. An offset account is a good example of that anyway. And, and, and get the, get the um, amount of repayment reduced so you can accommodate the higher level of, uh, of interest. So that's kind of how you can move around in a property portfolio. And then maybe as rates come down, you then do a redraw and take that equity back out and put it into something else. It's quite nimble the way, the way you describe mm -hmm. it. And the next question that flows on from that is assuming interest rates have gone up, you've had to sell a property, mm -hmm. there's likely other people in the same situation, mm -hmm. prices pull back sharply. Let's say we have a correction in the property market, let's say it's 10 or 20%. Mm -hmm. That can be a big deal. What do you do? Yeah, look, I mean, and this is more relevant, I suppose, to someone that's got a portfolio of properties versus, versus one. Um, if, you, if you've got a portfolio of properties, and one of the big challenges people often have when they're building out that portfolio is they strip the equity from one to buy the next, to buy the next, to buy the next. So you end up with a, a portfolio that's pretty thin in terms of the actual equity that's in there. Uh, with an investment property, typically is an 80, you know, it's a 20% deposit, 80% um, LVR um, type situation that you're looking at and what can sometimes happen if property prices do fall by a more significant event, uh, uh, an amount, the bank can often demand more cash be put in to maintain that ratio between the cash that you've got in and the value of the property to keep that 80-20 LVR in play. Now, of course, if you've got you know, a reasonable, say you've got five or six properties, that can be quite a challenge because that might be across the board that you've got to do it. And in those circumstances, I think it's probably quite smart to unwind uh, the position a little bit uh, and sell down one or even two of those properties, which may break your heart at the time. But it's a question of sacrificing one to keep the portfolio moving along if you don't have the ability to tip in more cash to meet your uh, LVR requirements from your lender. All right. Quite now, interesting. Yeah. And when, if that sort of thing happens, I mean, it's not a knee-jerk reaction. That's where you want to reach out and talk to your advisor and go, well, okay, this is the situation. I mean, what can I do? Because there's always something you can do there. And it's sometimes just a question of shuffling around where your different columns of assets may well sit. Uh, but it does highlight the risk, I think, of, of overextending and growing a, a property portfolio at the higher end of the market where prices are starting to maybe roll over and maybe retrace a little bit. And look, long-term they will recover, I'm sure. But you've got to ride out that pullback, which can be quite challenging. So yeah, if you've got to sacrifice one to keep the, the portfolio going, that's that's the cold, hard decision that you have to make under those circumstances. And it's a prudent one. Has to be done. And the let's, last- Let's merit of the balloon. You know, that's yeah. what you're doing. 
Last question I've got, RE property, AB. Let's talk commercial property mm. for a second here. Typically higher vacancy rates. Yeah. Let's say you go through a period where your property is vacant for a period of time. Mm. What solutions would you have in that kind of crisis? Yeah, look, higher vac- uh, and the thing with commercial property, typically you work on a higher level of vacancy rate than you would with residential anyway. That's why the yield is typically a little bit higher with commercial. Um, in those sorts of circumstances, I guess there are a number of ways you can play it. You can do a, a, either a rent reduction or a contribution uh, like a six-month rent-free period to get okay. a tenant in, uh, which on the surface of it isn't fun because someone's getting the benefit of your property for, for six months without paying any rent. But if you're able to tie them then into a longer-term tenancy agreement where um, you've got a, a good quality tenant that's going to be in there for maybe four or five years, that is usually enough to assuage the bank because they can see the forecast of earnings that are coming in from that and, 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 and they're usually reasonably comfortable with that. I guess the, the one challenge to reducing rent in a commercial situation is that what that then does is reduce the yield on the property and property valuations, particularly in a commercial environment, are based on where their yield sits. So if you reduce the yield, then you're having a, an amplified impact on the value of the property. Got you. Okay. It can be a problem if you're going to go in on sell it. So if your yield's gone from, say, 8 to 6%, um, that's only a, a, a 25% drop. Well, only. It's a 25% drop in your yield. But when you amplify that over the value of the property, a 25% drop in the value of the property can be really quite substantial. Oh, yeah. Particularly in the commercial property space where prices are typically a lot yeah. higher. So offering incentives, I think, can be a really smart thing. And, you know, I've had enough negotiations with landlords over the years where, you know, you go in and it's almost hand-to-hand combat where you're arguing about this and we want that and a fit-out contribution if it's an office, for example, or if it's a restaurant uh, or concessions on a rent-free period or a combination of the two where there's a fit-out contribution and a, a rent-free period um, and, and you might have a, a, a stepper in the in the lease where you go look um, you know we'll go on a lower level of rent for the first 12 months and then there's a, a more aggressive step in years two and three um, you know it's just a question of working out as the landlord or as a tenant but I guess we're coming from the landlord's perspective here what do you need to secure in order to to hold the value of the property or, or, or avoid any you know, catastrophic damage by it being empty for you know 12 months or two years which obviously does a, a material job on your yield and, and really devalues the property substantially god forbid change of pace now ab what about managed funds so let's say the market goes through a correction or a pullback you've got a managed fund what are you looking at doing there look if if, if it's a meat and potatoes managed fund i think you've got to pull the pin you know if you've got a long only australian equities fund for example you need to get smashed um yeah and, and and the market is showing signs of a pullback and there's an expectation maybe you're going into a recession uh, and you're expecting the market to drop on the back of it um you know Holding on to that investment is is probably not ideal because chances are it's not going to be hedged to the downside and it's certainly not going to have any bearish positions um, you know, running in it. The alternate would be if it was more like a hedge fund, an absolute return type fund, whereby in those conditions the fund manager would literally flip it and, and, and be short the market. So you know, if you're in a traditional managed fund, you're pretty much screwed. That's a technical way of describing it at least. If you're in something that's more absolute return uh, focused, which is long or short, like long the market or short the market, um, then you're probably going to weather that storm reasonably well. But if you're in a mum and dad meat and potatoes managed fund, I'd probably be liquidating that position and reverting to cash. All the more need for financial literacy, which mm. brings me to our, our sort of semi-last component, which would be, let's say you're trading direct shares. Mm. So you're in control of the decision making. Yep. You're the one pulling the trigger. There's some bearishness across the market. Let's say it's correction 20%. Yeah. Why, uh, sorry, would you rather ride the wave down or are you taking steps before that? 
Look, you've got to be on top of your market timing and, and, and have an evolved skill set. And one of the things that we've talked extensively about is investing in your education. So you've got the, the specialist skills or the team around you to, to assist you with this. Uh, and Tony Robbins talks about this quite extensively in, in, in one of his books, uh, Unshakable. Trying to time the market if you're a retail investor is very difficult because you might get out now and then you don't get in in time to capture the upswing. So you've got to be very careful when it comes to sort of liquidating positions and going back in. But on the assumption you've got a, a level of financial literacy and some level of skill or access to a team that does around you, I think you know if you own direct shares, I'd be seriously reviewing what you've got held within your portfolio for a couple of reasons. I guess the diehards are going to say, look, you know, the market always recovers, which touch wood it has to date. But it also takes time to do that. And if you if you look at say the GFC as an example of this, it took the Australian equity market, the stock market, 12 years to recover to its pre-GFC levels. That means effectively your shares have been anesthetized, put to sleep for 12 years Big before you get cost. back to the capital value you had before. And if you think about how the cost of living has been rattling along uh, more recently, what you could buy with that money based on its value 12 years ago is, is not that much. So you can't afford to get left behind by that. So I think it's important to be fairly nimble within your portfolio. So if you're a direct share investor, moving out of like high growth stocks into more defensive holdings like utilities, for example, telcos, another one I don't normally recommend telcos. You know, And if you look at the, the sort of historical performance of stocks like Telstra or AT&T, you know, they've been horrific performers over a 20 year basis, but they still have their time in the sun uh, during times of crisis because they're very defensive, you know, and if prices are moving higher, they jack up their price. If the economy is slowing down, people still use the phone. So, you know, utilities, um, you know, probably pharmaceuticals, um, grocery, you know, because people still got to eat, um, grog, alcohol and tobacco. Classic one, isn't uh, it? Yeah, and gambling are probably your defensive areas uh, that, that, that are reasonably immune to, to or, or less vulnerable to a correction than, say, banks or, you, or, or tech stocks, for example, or mining for that matter. So restructuring your portfolio is an important part of it. If you've, if you've got the ability and the skill set to buy puts to insure yourself to the downside, again, that's probably not a bad idea either. Uh, and again, that gives you that ability to protect yourself a little from, from, from that downside risk. What about some, say, bearish assets? So I know you play a lot in the ETF space, yeah. so inverse ETFs, volatility even. Hmm. So again, if you're moving into a phase where markets aren't just dropping today, but it appears to be a more sustained trend on the back of slower earnings, uh, higher inflation, lower economic growth, those sort of, uh, higher interest rates, any of those sort of markers which can, can sort of... Um, come up as a, a bit of an early warning of those things, then certainly some bearish assets. So for example, if you're bullish the market, you might hold the S&P 500, the US 500 index. So SH is the short version of that. So the more the S&P falls, the more SH goes up. So that gives you an inverse ability. If we're looking at the Aussie market, I guess BEAR, B-E-A-R, B-B-O-Z, uh, yep. would be a couple of examples of being able to, to do the same thing in the Aussie market. Um, if, if you wanted to be racy, uh, you know, you could go SQQ on the Ooh, NASDAQ yeah. or PSQ on an ungeared basis. But yep. all of these things are designed to profit from falling markets. And they're a one-stop shop where a retail investor, Joe Bag of Donuts, can literally go and buy an asset without having to be too sophisticated that's going to profit under those falling market conditions. So, you know, in a slower economy or a falling market, then certainly they give you the ability to not only, um, I guess, protect your net worth, but actually make some money out of it. 
And, and for that matter, if you've got a portfolio of shares, you could buy some of these assets within that to hedge out gotcha. the risk on the other side. And the classic one to add to this too is have some risk management in place in the first place, whether oh, yeah. it's stop loss or maybe buying some put options as insurance. Either way, there's a significant downfall. You're going to be somewhat protected. 100%. You know, having stops and, and risk management and or insurance is key. Another one would be to buy some volatility because typically markets are more volatile when they're falling than when they're rising. You know, they go up the staircase and down the elevator shaft is the uh, the old analogy. And, um, and so in those circumstances, a sharp fall typically increases volatility. So buying... Uh, a volatility play such as you know, Vixie, which is an American ETF, is is a pretty easy way for for a mum and dad investor to get exposure to that. All right, let's let's flesh this out a little bit, but let's throw in some specific events. AB, going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> nice you know, one. I Thanks. love this. Thanks, Mitch. You're going to make me work. I'll be I'll be beating up. I'll be sweating in a moment. Wonder how much you get paid. So I definitely have to make you work for it. <laughs> specific event. Let's say COVID outbreak. Mm. What are you doing in the stock market? Okay, so in the example of a stock market, as I say, you know, successful investing is being able to identify a piece of news and then make a reasonably good quality investment decision off the back of it. So as COVID evolved, obviously people stopped traveling or weren't allowed to travel in most instances. So the sectors or types of businesses that are going to get hit the hardest would be things like airlines, um, hotels, uh, giving you two examples of areas whereby um, there's no use for the service. Cruise line is another one um, where people aren't going on holiday, they're not going on a cruise, they're not staying in a hotel, they're not flying somewhere. You can't fly anyway because you can't travel anywhere. And so all of those types of businesses are going to be under really significant pressure because someone's just effectively turned off the revenue tap. And so being able to go short those types of businesses is key. Um, and there, there are ways of doing that. Um, you know, it's, things like airlines are actually quite tricky to short since September 11, but there are ways you can do it. You can buy puts, for example, or you can take a sector ETF like Jets and, and, and you can be short that. My first ever short trade, believe it or not, was on Sydney Airport. No longer listed on the ASX, no, but she went no, short no. through COVID on Sydney right. Airport, made a monster on it. Great. Seems like a long time ago now. And that it was, was. I do. I remember that trade now. I think we even talked about it in one of the podcasts. We or, did. Yeah, and then yeah. we went and closed it out subsequently directly after. And here you are now, a seasoned investor many years later. Yeah, that's right. Still didn't shout the coffees that day either. Nah, cold day in hell before that happens. <laughs> that'll, that'll be a bullish signal for markets when you buy the coffee for the offices, for sure. God forbid. Okay, next one. Let's say the bank's go bust or there's some turmoil in the banking mm. sector as we've seen recently. Absolutely. So we see that, um, you know, Signature Bank uh, and First State Bank in the US uh, and Credit Suisse on a global platform, I suppose, um, you know, imploding. Um, what does that typically mean? Well, you know, you want to be short that sector, um, either the local banks or if you look at something like XLF, uh, which is uh, uh, the, the banking sector in the US, um, getting some short trades running on that, certainly not holding them as long positions. So at the most basic level, sell out of those stocks. Reduce the exposure. So you don't have exposure to it. And yep. then once you've you've sort of staunched any flow of blood out by not actually being in those investments that are getting smashed, you can then look to be on the other side of the trade and then be short and profit from it. Also think again, like going long VIX in those sorts of circumstances where you expect volatility to increase, which with a banking sector under pressure is almost certainly going to happen. Um, that's the kind of go-to in an equity market crisis is, is by volatility because that tends to move hard and fast and it's got fangs. So if you're oh, yeah. on the right side of it, you can do very, very well. All right, third scenario here, and we might give one more after that. We'll see how you're traveling, is rapid inflation. So inflation's getting out of hand. What are you buying? What are you selling? Okay, so if inflation's gaining pressure, um, you're going to see interest rates ultimately move up because it's called monetary policy. Most central banks and most governments, their major way of dealing with inflation is to move up interest rates. Um, so when you have higher, higher interest rates, 
um, you typically would expect to see bond yields move up higher too. And as a consequence, bond prices move down because bond prices, bond yields are inversely correlated. So in that instance, things like TBT uh, in the US, which is, uh, which is an exchange traded fund that profits from falling bond prices or, or rising bond yields, same thing, uh, would be a go-to type investment. And then as, as that pendulum swings back the other way and interest rates are kind of tapped out and are starting to either flatten or start to fall down and inflation is moving away, then you close out a TBT, it's done its job, and then move into the opposite of it, which is actually TLT. So again, you know, for anyone listening to this thing, gee, this sounds like it's really hard work and you've got to be really active. The reality is you might only do that trade, you know, once every three years. You Take, make money from it. You can make some really significant money. You know, you look at TBT's performance as interest rates started to move up, went from yeah, around about $13 to 36 bucks over the course of about an 18-month window. That's one transaction that's more than, or it's almost tripled your money through that period of time. You had to do one trade. So don't fall into the trap of thinking you're going to be too busy to do this sort of stuff. Um, it's just It just requires a process and a little bit of discipline to be looking at these things. And I guess that's the sort of support we provide for our clients. All right. Well, can I throw a last example at you? A bit of a hairy one. Let's see mm-hmm. how you go here. Let's say there's a trade embargo with China mm-hmm. between Australia. Where are you playing? <laughs> okay, so tough one. Yeah, that, and I mean it's reasonably topical too. Insofar as you know, that's been a bit of a moving feast on the back of the politics of our, our trade relations with China. And look at the at the top end of the the, the sort of uh, scale of our relationship with China are things like iron ore and coal, and and the demand for iron ore and coal typically is quite high. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the Chinese economy, which is going through its own drama at the moment, um, you know, steel is a major component of it because it helps. Uh, you know, support the construction boom and industrial production. So iron ore demand might get affected by tariffs, but there's still a requirement for it at this point in time until China sources its iron ore from other parts of the world. But there are more discretionary types of purchase that you can bang on the head pretty quickly. And probably uh, the best example of that, as far as Australian listed companies are concerned, is the wine industry. Oh, yeah. So, you know, with China and its, its growing middle class, the notion of, of drinking wine is a very um, strong indicator of affluence and social standing and, and social climbing for that matter. And obviously, you know, in Australia, we're blessed to make some wonderful wine um, and, and some of the world's best wines when you think of things like, you know, Grange and, you know, Hill of Grace and things of that sort of nature. Um, so from China's perspective, yeah, if you really want to hurt, and we saw that happen, you start to introduce you know, a fairly significant tariff on, on, on wine. They're trying to promote their own internal wine industry. So companies like Treasury Wines are massively exposed to that because their major growth market is, of course, China. And, and you may argue that, well, send your business development manager out to go and find some, some alternate markets you can sell your wine into. And that's actually quite challenging because the other markets, particularly for Australia, uh, that, are, that are their big markets include things like the UK. And, and the wine market in the UK on, on, a, on, a, on a scale basis for things like treasure wines is very much towards the lower end of the quality range. You know, that sort of under five bucks uh, sort of you know, Chardonnay, for example, which my, my father's always bragging about. I can buy Australian wine in the UK <laughs> cheaper than I can here, uh, which, which, you know, is crazy when you think about yeah. it. And, and the revenue margin selling a, 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 a three or five dollar bottle of wine in the UK versus a thousand dollar bottle of Grange is really quite different. And so it's really hard to find those new premium markets. Uh, and particularly when you consider that, you know, the consumption of alcohol 
puts an additional level of restriction on you when you look at countries that have got a particular religious disposition. And so the notion of saying, oh, that country is growing in affluence, we'll just sell our alcohol there, but alcohol is not a product that you can sell there, mean that your options are really, really limited. So that's an example of a really special situation where, you know, likes of Treasury Wines really did it quite tough. They've also been quite smart because they've started to grow uh, their grapes now in China as well. So they've got their in into that market. Very, very well-run business, Treasury Wines I might add. Um, but that's an example where there's a knee-jerk shock on the back of an export ban. And this is why you're an expert in your field. AB, that's cracking advice. And I I'm think talking about expert in my field when it comes to wine, most definitely I love wine. <laughs> wine and trading, believe it or not, probably why you can afford the wine in the first place. AB, I think that's a really good rundown, times of crisis. So are there any final words for our viewers here? Look, I guess the key takeaway in all of this is that when there's a crisis, the human reaction typically is to panic. Uh, when people panic, they typically freeze. And that's the last thing that you want to do. You know, we've talked about these things in a very measured way because they're all rear vision mirrors. They're things that have happened. We've been able to commentate and help our clients through those phases and, uh, and to make some money through there. In, in, in the real time heat of combat, you've got to work really, really hard on your investor psychology not to get overwhelmed and go, oh, you know, disaster and, and just freeze and not do something because there's a substantial reward for being nimble and quick to act. The later you act, the more opportunity you miss. And if you're rolling a portfolio from being bullish and long where you're holding all the bank stocks and the growth stocks to going, that music's changed. We need to quickly get short. The quicker you can do it, the less money you're going to avoid losing by being in the wrong stocks and the quicker you can get into the profitable short trades or more defensive positions every day you wait to make that decision costs you real dough and it's a question of just having that that nimbleness and confidence to go okay i'm not fearful of this these kinds of crises come along periodically and when they do and we've outlined some of the action steps that you can take here this is the playbook that i go to to make sure that what i'm doing is consistent with the outcome that i want which is to either protect or grow my wealth very nice well said ab thank you very much for the insight today absolute pleasure anytime mitch there you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a rating and a review, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.